politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for another new week of fun here at the Conservative Review, your only source of independent conservative news and views and revolutions, which we certainly need one at this juncture. Yup, it's Monday, July 13th, not Friday the 13th, although it certainly feels like that every day, a horror movie. And, you know, I I just wonder when this is going to die down. It's like 50% of my time I focus on the anarchy, the reverse Jim Crow, the war on whites in this country that people are too scared to talk about which, by the way, is getting more black children killed every day because you know they don't lock people up under the guise of, oh, you can't lock up black criminals, and then obviously they harm black victims more than anyone else. But certainly, we have all these stories of whites not having the right to self-defense. And then the other half of the time, this viral hoax. And what I mean by a hoax is not that a virus doesn't exist, not that it can't be deadly to some people in some way, but how it's blown out of proportion and how we are lied to about the ability of humans to mitigate it. After there is reams of data demonstrating there is zero correlation between mask wearing or lockdowns and positive results again and again and again. We're going to go through some of that. We obviously have more at the border going on. But I wonder, like, when could I even take a vacation already? Each weekend has so much information, so many new stories I want to share with you, and I'm dying to get back in front of this microphone. Now, look, what is going on on some level is personal to me, except I have a lot of data to back this up. This business of shutting down children and child abuse. You know, this morning I had a major issue with my oldest son, He really didn't want to go to camp today. And his camp consists of four and a half hours of what's basically just a backyard camp. And the problem is he's not five, he's 10. So a backyard camp is very limited. And we can't really blame him for not wanting to go. He's like, it's boring, there's nothing we're doing. We badly need him out of the house for a couple hours just to be with other kids. But the city shut the major camps. And I want to share with you a story today on this business of child abuse and children. I just want to first say in general how shocking it is how the anarchy and tyranny continue to merge. The jailbreak, the release of criminals, the release of criminals under the guise of stemming the spread, ironically, and they all come back together. We've said this numerous times, how the same people who want to lock us up in jail if we don't wear a mask under the pseudoscience of coronavirus are, lock, are, are letting out the most violent gun felons because of the virus. When ironically, if you look at the prison data, and maybe I'll have time to update this. I did this a little bit in April, if you remember. The death rate among prisoners is actually lower than among the general population. It's extremely low. Among those who likely got it, you know, they're testing at 20, 25% rate. Almost all are asymptomatic. 
you know, it follows the general contours of the general public that those with conditions who are older are the ones who wind up dying. And it's very few of them as a percentage of who's in the prison. But the same way that Cuomo and Murphy and Whitmere and these other governors went and took COVID-positive patients and placed them in nursing homes to kill them, they are taking violent criminal-positive criminals out of jail and putting them on our streets to kill more people. You might have seen over the weekend, I published a story about that 11-year-old boy who was at a barbecue with his family. They had like a block party in D.C., this neighborhood there in southeast D.C., to honor July 4th. And a gang came by in a drive-by shooting, shot several people, killing an 11-year-old boy. And by the way, just over this weekend, just Sunday night, in Brooklyn, there was another block party where people were having a barbecue. A one-year-old baby was shot in the abdomen. All the victims are black, by the way. Now, in the D.C. case, it turns out every single one was a repeat gun felon who was released from jail, parole violator, and one of them, this Christian Wingfield guy, it turns out was released in May because of coronavirus. And now a black child is dead. The Republican Party has the opportunity to jujitsu the blood libels matter agenda on racialism and policing and, and incarceration. They have the opportunity to jujitsu the gun control agenda. They have the opportunity to jujitsu the corona jailbreak agenda. All three issues by shoving it down their throats and showing how it's their very policies that wind up killing black children more than anything else. Let me tell you, a black child is a lot more likely to die from homicide than from coronavirus. Among the general population, I looked it up. I'm going to have an article out today on this. It's about 57 times more likely to die from homicide. So among black children living in the inner cities, gosh, it's probably like 500 times more likely than from the virus. These are the messaging points for which we have no party to give our side of the story. Do you know that over 100,000 criminals have been released since March? UCLA has a database. It's linked to in my article on this uh, D.C. shooting. If you want to find it, go to conservativereview.com. You can find all my columns there. 100,000, another 8,000 were released in California. It brings us up to about 100,000, 3,000. Two-thirds of them were released from jails, the rest from prisons. You cannot begin to imagine when you release over 100,000 criminals the effects that that's going to have on society. Notice how they're using it all against us. They lock us down. They threaten us with jail time. If we open a business, if we don't wear a mask. But criminals are released. 
100,000. Again, you're not, not going to hear this anywhere else. Because Republicans won't talk about it. They won't talk about it. See, the beauty of the left is they don't talk. They don't debate. They just do. They'll take a revolutionary policy that if you would prospectively talk about, you know, should we make everyone wear a mask 10 hours a day in a school, in a business, whatever? Everyone would be like, no. I mean, they, they would rail against it. But what they do is they make it happen before you could even mobilize. And then the fact that it is, that it happened, that they did, in their mind proves the veracity of their belief. Well, it happened. Nothing bad happened. We did it. Now the onus becomes on you to say why you're going to dislodge that policy. Right? That, that's that's advantage you always have. People don't like change. Whenever there's a proposed change, people will rail against it from all sides, whatever it is. But if you do it, now you have, you have it. So that's what they did without thinking. Wear a mask. Done. Lock us down. Done. Shut schools. Done. So now we're left with the ones like, oh, well, you see, it happens. So after a week or so, that becomes normal. The political amnesia kicks in. The human ability to be acculturated to things so quickly is, is phenomenal. And this is really the central problem with Trump. Because Trump is really the, he does the exact opposite of what works so well for the left. He warns, threatens, tweets, debates with himself. Flip-flops with himself. So what that does is it, it allures a very truculent and aggressive blowback from the left. The most vulnerable position to be caught with in battle is to come out from the bushes and start shooting, but not to advance and, and take over, take ground. So you expose yourself, you're vulnerable, but you're not taking ground. You're a sitting duck. That's, that's what the president's doing. Instead, what he needs to do is do. What I would have done is I would have had a 100-day plan for the first 100 days of the administration. We spoke about it at the time three years ago. And I would have pounded the left on crime, on immigration, on healthcare, you name it. Implement, implement, implement. Don't talk, don't debate, don't tease on Twitter. Do it. And then afterwards, you serve as a bully pulpit and defend it and talk about it. But you do. That's what the left does. They do it by hook or by crook, and more often these days by crook. Should we release 1,000, 100,000 criminals? Nobody would support that. So you know what they do? They just quietly do it. Should we take down statues of, of Columbus? Well, no one's going to say we should do that. They'll just go and do it. And now the debate's on to the next thing and the next thing. That's how they shift things over. One of the areas where they did this is when they closed the schools. It was one of the most destructive and dumbest things ever done in the history of humanity. When the threat of coronavirus to children is less than the flu, their ability to transmit it is so low from child to adult. Study after study after study. You know, because with the flu, children really do... Um, you know, they, they, they really account for a lot of that transmission. I mean, anyone with young kids like I do, you'll know that when they get a cold, you get a cold. And they're the ones who get it first. But that's not the case here. And they just shut the schools. So what's the biggest proof 
that coronavirus is a threat to children. Well, it's not. But what's the biggest proof? The fact that they shut schools. You see what I mean? That's what the left does. They come, they see, they conquer, they do. And then it kind of proves, well, you know, they shut the schools. I mean, no one would believe that they would do something this dramatic if there's no truth to it. I mean, we wouldn't destroy our civilization if there wasn't truth, against, you know, to, to animus and bias against blacks, right? That's the beauty of what they do. What they do is so unbelievable that it's truly unbelievable. No one believes it. You have all these prestigious institutions that just lie and put out garbage now because it's all politicized and no one would believe how political they are. Yet I want to show you how political they get. And that's the overarching lesson today. If you want to understand or solve a riddle to a scientific, a medical question, here's what you need to do. You examine the literature on that issue before it became political. Because then it was just a you know an academic question. So people are going to be truthful about what they find in their studies and you know the, the questions they pursue. The minute it becomes political, it's all flat earth. That's the new national religion. So getting back to the schools, I want to talk about the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's very highly regarded, unlike the AARP or the AMA, they're regarded as you know less political, you know, like because those other groups are just overtly left-wing. And before this issue became real political a few weeks ago, when you know, summer, the, the fall semester was still pretty far off. The AAP put out a statement organically, which revealed their natural views on the issue. And they, and they said that they strongly, quote, strongly believe that, quote, all policy considerations for the coming school year should start with a goal of having students physically present in school. Period. There was no equivocation. Well, it should depend on the area. Maybe certain areas, yes. Certain areas, no. Maybe a hybrid. Maybe every other day. Maybe do this to the classroom. Have input from this union and that union. No. It was straight up. They, they stated the obvious that from all available research, not only are children not at risk, but they don't contribute to community spread. Quote, although children and adolescents play a major role in amplifying influenza outbreaks to date, this does not appear to be the case with SARS-CoV-2. End quote. Okay? So that's pretty definitive. Fast forward to last Friday. They put, up, put out a revised, updated statement and in it they put out a um a press release and they said in the press release no local school leaders public health experts educators parents must be at the center of decisions about how and when to reopen schools taking into account the spread of covid in their communities and the capacities of school districts to adapt safety protocols to make in-person learning safe and feasible schools in areas with high levels of covid community spread should not be compelled to reopen against the judgment of local experts a one-size-fits-all approach is not appropriate to return to school decisions. And then they take a swipe at Trump and they say, 
that reopening schools in a way that maximizes safety, learning, and the well-being of children, teachers, and staff will clearly require substantial new investments in our schools and campuses. We call on Congress and the administration to provide the federal resources needed to ensure that inadequate funding does not stand in the way of safety Safely educating and caring for children in our schools, withholding funding from schools that do not open in person full-time would be a misguided approach, putting already financially strapped schools in an impossible position that would threaten the health of students and teachers. (laughs) Now, if you remember, what changed within the last few weeks? The science, the data? Nope. Children are just as unlikely to die from it or transmit as they were before. The evidence is mounting. In fact, that it is flat earth science to suggest they are, and that if you are going to worry about children during COVID, then by a factor of 10, you need to worry every flu season and shut schools for three, four months every year. As you all know, what changed was Trump came out and said schools need to open. He threatened to you know deny funding to those that don't. Governor DeSantis in Florida pushed that. Some others did. And then the teachers' unions pushed back, and they had a tantrum. You see, because they're so altruistic, they so badly want to teach kids that, well, they actually don't. They don't want to go to school. They want to get paid and not teach, as they always do. And again, this doesn't represent the vast majority of teachers in this country. They hijack the profession, and they just speak on their behalf without any representation, really. They're not teachers. They're politicians. And basically, that forced the AAP to recant. I want you guys to understand there is a very dangerous trend in this country now. Where any time an institution that was nonpartisan, that put out intuitive truths based on substantial research before an issue became political, once that gets cited by people like me as conservatives, notice they walk it back. You're not allowed to believe in that anymore. So we saw this. We talked about this last week with the Michigan State study on how, if anything, there is more bias against whites in police shooting, shootings and blacks. Painstaking study of 900 police shootings in 2015. The minute Heather McDonald and I quoted it, they recanted. It was around for years, that study. But it doesn't matter because once the mob gets to you, We believe in mob data and mob science, not in real science. Folks, do you know how flat earth this is? Every year, nearly 1,400 children, according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, are hospitalized due to playground injuries. Three times the amount that have been hospitalized from COVID. Some kids died from playground injuries. Should we shut down schools for that? Should we always have only remote learning so you don't run the risk of dying in a playground accident? As you all know, kids have less of a chance of dying than getting struck by lightning. As I noted before, children 5 to 14 are 25 times more likely to die from homicide than from COVID, and and among inner-city kids, it's going to be much more. Here's the funny thing. We don't need to speculate what the world would look like reopening during COVID, which, by the way, 
the number of deaths as a percentage of the weekly deaths are no longer the level of an epidemic, according to CDC's definition. It has to be 5.9% of, um, of all uh, deaths that week, and it does not look like we have met it the last few weeks. But Sweden, Sweden never closed their primary schools. Obviously, Switzerland, Netherlands, France, all the places that opened never had a problem with kids dying. But Sweden never closed their primary schools. According to one analysis in Sweden, only 14 children in Stockholm were hospitalized for what could possibly be called COVID-like ailments because even those kids aren't confirmed that that's what it was. There was one child in Stockholm with serious underlying conditions who wound up testing positive and he wound up dying. But they note that the relevance for the outcome is unclear since other pathogens were also identified in postmortem testing. So they have one case and they're not even clear. They, they, there's no proof that he died of COVID. Again, it's not to say that you can't have a few. We likely did have a few, but it's much less than the flu. And we don't close schools for the flu. And obviously, you, you, know, you could account for the fact that the small number of kids with serious heart defects or things like that or cystic fibrosis or something, look, for them, you could have an online streaming or whatever, but you can't destroy entire schools for whatever percentage of kids have that, which is, is obviously very low, you know, much lower than, than with adults. A fascinating report by um, the Swedish government, Public Health Agency of Sweden, they, they contrasted Finland's experience and Sweden's. So Finland closed schools, and they found no measurable, measurable direct impact on the number of laboratory-confirmed cases in school-aged children in Finland or Sweden. And that's very important because Sweden did have more cases across the board, like the general population, than Finland did. As we said before, it's probably because they, they, they're a more widely traveled country than Finland, so they let more from China in to begin with, or from Italy, and you know the secondary countries, and also they have a much larger immigrant population that seem to really, you know, have, get the virus and die from it at a much higher rate than everyone else. So the fact that they did have in general a higher rate, but among kids they did not find any measurable difference between them and Finland, even though Finland closed their schools, Sweden did not. And they conclude. Quote, the negative effects of closing schools must be weighed against the positive indirect effects it might have on the mitigation of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they also found that the comparison, quote, does not show any increased risk for teachers. Why? Because the role of children in propagating the infection is likely to be small. We've talked about this a lot before. They've done studies in UK, Iceland, Australia, Switzerland, Canada, Netherlands, France, Ireland, and Taiwan. There's probably a few more, but those are the ones I have linked to. And they found they did not find any child-to-adult transmission. So in other words, children get it less often. They, they, They get it, but less often than adults. When they do get it, it's never deadly in any meaningful way. Um... But when they do get it, they get it from adults. Not They don't give it to adults. That's what they found. 
Why? It's likely because they have a very low viral load. They're almost all asymptomatic. And by the way, this is no different than um, the asymptomatic uh, among adults. Despite the lies, study after study has shown they likely play a much smaller role in spreading than people think, asymptomatic. And that's probably the biggest proof is children because most children are asymptomatic. And that's likely because it's a low viral load and a low viral load doesn't really transmit. Certainly, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, to my knowledge, there is no proven case of someone getting a serious deadly case from an asymptomatic case. And it makes sense given the viral load. But Iceland did the most painstaking study. They have a genetics um, tech group there that was um, given access to all cases by, by the government of Iceland. And they sequenced all the genomes from samples of every positive case. And they tracked the mutation patterns. So they got it straight up. They tracked who transmitted to who. You're able to do this. They concluded, quote, even if children do get infected, they are less likely to transmit the disease to other, others than adults. We have not found a single instance of a child infecting parents. Now, again, I think in other places in the world, they found it a little bit. It's likely not never, but that's not the point. The point is you don't shut schools for that degree of risk. The point is their ability to transmit is likely extremely low from the fact that so many countries, including Iceland, never found an instance of it. So, like, you know, if you hear, oh, my cousin's uncle's brother says they got it from a child. Dude, they weren't sequencing genomes, okay? Iceland did that. And they didn't find it. So I, I hate this hearsay like garbage. And that's the story. The AARP, the, I'm saying the AAP, they claim that they're being driven by science. Yes. Yes, they're being driven by science. They say... um, Science should drive decision-making on safely reopening schools. <laughs> Which science? The science of the teachers' union. The science of the mob. Science of the mob. There is no science. AP's own medical journal recently, just recently, had a commentary by two doctors for the AAP. Quote, Evidence and experience argue that children, particularly school-age children, are far less important drivers of so, uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmission than adults. COVID-19 transmission. So they, they, they basically have an article. If you want to Google it, I don't have it in front of me, but Google AAP Medical Journal, COVID-19 transmission in children, the child is not to blame. Okay, that's the title of their article. They conclude, therefore, serious consideration should be paid towards strategies that allow schools to remain open even during periods of COVID-19 spread. Okay? And as I've noted before, if anything, it's a plus because you want kids, this is how you achieve herd immunity quicker on the cheap with the lowest risk demographic, assuming a level of risk that is lower than the level that we accept and shoulder every year during the flu season. 
and we never think twice about closing schools. You can have many, many years. Like I say, look, if you have school-age children, I'm sure you see this. Some flu seasons where half the class is out for a week, and that happens. And again, unlike the flu, so we're talking about the death rate, and the hospitalization rate is certainly much higher for the flu in children than than kids. And 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 also, not only that, it, it, usually it is more dangerous to those with serious conditions. But it, it generally do, often does rope in those without conditions too. Whereas even the few serious cases of of COVID with with children that we did find, almost all seem to be among kids with with very serious conditions. So again, they're very easy to isolate and target. Um, and and separate from the general population. But in addition to that, even the ones that never come close to being hospitalized, they get pretty doggone sick. I mean, the flu is the flu. I had a kid in one of, one of my son's classes. They, they couldn't find what was wrong with him. I mean, I think it eventually went away, but he had three weeks of rolling fever. There's very few examples of that from COVID. But this happens all the time. I mean... There, there might be an asymptomatic component to the flu. There is some literature on that. But in general, if you, you know, I mean, you know, you spread it in a class, you get it, you get it. I mean, you get three to five days of, of you know, being pretty sick. That's life. Now, we're scared of any even asymptomatic whatever. I mean, this is insane. But it all comes from the teachers union. The LA Teachers Union published a list of demands that schools need to be re- reopened only with mandatory mask wearing, tiny class sizes, all these insane logistics that facilitate more social isolation among kids. Oh, and by the way, they added in their list of demands that schools can't be open either until they have Medicare for all, a wealth tax defunding the police, and financial aid for illegal aliens. <laughs> but then again, the truth be told, they're not wrong. There's just as much science behind closing schools until the police are abolished as there is behind closing schools until the virus is eradicated. Folks, the moral of the story is every institution in this country is now tainted by politics. If you want the truth, if you want the truth on mask wearing, there's a lot of good studies now out. I mean, not from now, but that are being circulated on the internet. Very prestigious journals from long ago. In other words, it was a fascinating thing. There was one study I saw from dentist's offices. They wanted to study, you know, does it really help? And they found it really doesn't. Certainly not microbiology. And on the flip side, one of the things I really resent from all these mask-wearing fascists, you know, even if you believe in it, right, there is no evidence it works. And in fact, in all the places that they have mandated it for weeks, it continues to spread. I mean, this is the problem. There are so many examples of places that didn't do lockdown, like Sweden, and have a much better result. Did it a small lockdown, a late lockdown, an early reopening, didn't have a problem. And so many places where they continue to have problems. And they've mandated it. There's zero correlation. Human input is just not the thing. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but hold that thought. Back to masks, I just meant to say that they're making it seem like, shut up, this is the least you can do. What's your problem? But that's that's an extremely severe thing to mandate people wear it all day and now in a lot of places, even outdoors. There have been a lot of people now that have put on meters to monitor oxygen levels and they found that after an entire day of this, 
They get dizzy and their oxygen levels drop. You better be doggone sure that, that the science is sound behind this before you mandate it. And again, we would have never done this had we had a debate, but they just did it. So now it's like we're the one trying to oppose the status quo. That's what the left does so successfully. But anyway, folks, the reality is what we're finding is there is no correlation. It seems to be seasonal. It seems to start in the north. It goes to the south later. You have to remember most of the places where it's spreading now barely got anything. See, we already panicked as if it was the bubonic plague. And now it's like, oh my gosh, now they got a double hit. But not really because they didn't really get a first hit. So far, the places that really got hit in the northeast aren't getting hit again. The only thing I was probably wrong on, I was right the entire time. I said, look, you're going to have to achieve herd immunity. You're never going to be able to do a lockdown. Lockdowns don't help anyway. You're going to have to reopen. So you have to stratify and shield. Stratify those who are vulnerable and everyone else needs to go out. And you just avoid super spreading events. That's what I said. Now, as time went on in May, it almost seemed like we wouldn't even have to achieve that 20. And when I say herd immunity, it's not 70%. It's likely 20 to 30%. But, you know, a lot of places only got 5%, 10%. So we'd have to do a little bit more. But then there was the signs like, wow, maybe it's just going to burn out. We don't need to do that. Now it appears, no, it appears we probably will need to do that. It, it, it is in all the places that only had maybe 5% seroprevalence. It's going to go on, but not until 70, probably 20% or so. Because that's what we see in the prisons, in the um, in the ships where it spreads to everyone. You have a defined universe. It, it didn't go to 100% of the people. It hit a brick wall. Again, that has to do with the cross immunity from prior coronaviruses, the T-cells, as we talked about many times. But in terms of why some places get it when they do... The most likely thing is it's seasonal. It goes to these other states. It spreads later. But if you want to say there's a human input, you could graph it. You see my Twitter account. I've retweeted a lot of these good graphs that some of my friends have made. The reopenings were too early. They were way early to blame it on this. Whereas with the protests, it works out right at the incubation period. Yet these same people that promote the protests, that get more blacks killed, that promote the protests with jailbreak and promote policies that ensure that police don't lock people up and they kill even more people. They're also promoting the spread of the very virus that these people say is the worst thing since the beginning of humanity. That is how sickly, grossly hypocritical these people are. J.P. Morgan has an amazing 12-page analysis. J.P. Morgan is like, everyone might be, well, they're not doctors. Well, doctors suck. I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, the, the ones that didn't take time to study this. This is a data analysis thing. It has nothing to do with being a doctor. And these people are good at data analysis. This is from their report. While peak U.S. mobility declines are not as large as in other countries. So it is true that some other European countries did have a stricter lockdown. There are many countries with similar mobility declines that haven't experienced the infection surge now occurring in the U.S. And while most hotspot mobility declines were smaller than in other U.S. states, mobility doesn't consistently predict state infections either. 
As shown in our web portal, reopening dates also don't predict infections and hospitalizations. There are no easy answers for why U.S. infections have soared recently. Reopening dates, mobility changes, and other empirically measured behaviors do not lead to higher infections in any statistically consistent way. And and folks, like I pointed out before, you look at the four border states. So Arizona, California, and Texas have a spread now, right? New Mexico doesn't. Well, Daniel, New Mexico had a stricter lockdown. No, they didn't. You look at the Google mobility data, they had the highest mobility. Arizona had the lowest mobility, and it has the worst per capita problems now. Again, it's much, much less than, than the Northeast was in, in March and April, but, you know, for those other states, it's the worst now. There's, there's no correlation. You look in the Bible, every time it mentions God gets angry, God, you know, punished, it's always a plague. And it always mentions God. King David said, let me fall in the hand of God and not in the hand of, of, of men because God is merciful. Okay? So therefore, he chose when God offered him as a punishment, an invasion or a plague, he chose the plague. Human ability to, to change a respiratory virus, extremely limited. Extremely, extremely limited. If you want to know my best assumption of what is going on now, and we'll, we'll, we'll have guests on throughout the week and throughout the month to talk about this more, but I want to share with you from someone on Twitter. I don't know who this is, but it was a very smart thread they put out of graphics. It's PLC is the name at humble underscore analysis. If you want to follow whoever this person is. And they put out four graphics. They divided, this person divided the 50 states into four groups. And I think it's really true. 23 states are following the Gumpert's function. Meaning, deaths peaking early and then declining to near zero. So very sharp curves. These are mostly located in the Northeast and Midwest. Okay? So these are the states that had it bad to varying degrees. It peaked within six to eight weeks and then it died. Because likely they achieved herd immunity. It is Connecticut, Delaware, D.C., um, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, um, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Virginia, and Washington State. Okay. Then, then he has 16 states that the other end of the spectrum. So the 23 states had it the worst. And really, it's mainly the Northeast and really mainly the six nursing home states that killed people in nursing homes. You take them out of the equation, the deaths go down by half. Then you have the 16 states at the other end of the spectrum. They're mostly rural states in the West that they just never really got hit at the beginning and they still never really got hit. And it's very likely, we don't know for sure, it's very likely they'll never face it. So those are your Alaska, Arkansas, Hawaii, Idaho, Kansas, um, Maine, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, South Dakota, Utah, Vermont, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Okay, for obvious reasons. I mean, in, in those 16 states, 
Even though they had a severe, you know, some had no lockdown, some had severe lockdown. Hawaii had the biggest lockdown in the country. Um, you know, the Great Plains states like Iowa, North Dakota, uh, South Dakota, Nebraska had nothing. It's same result. Same result. Didn't matter. It's not the human ability. Then there's the two in the middle that really speak more to now. Nine states that have shown a slow, steady spread and rate of death. Right. In other words, it was kind of just gradual the whole time. It never really went off, but it never spiked like you're seeing in Arizona later. It's just kind of like a slow, low level kind of gradual thing. And that's Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, South Carolina, Tennessee and Wisconsin. And then finally, there's three states, California, Texas and Arizona that, you know, there was initially, you know, very little, and then it declined, even what little had, and then it had a rapid increase later on. Why are those three states different? Why are those three states different? Why are they experiencing a sharp increase? Isn't that very interesting? A sharp increase later on. The other ones either had it early on or they had a gradual thing or never. But to have like, you know, the little bit of a peak, very low and then back down and then suddenly get a big peak later on. What's the deal with that? What's the deal with that? Well, if you guess the border, you're smart. It's obvious. It's obvious what's going on. Folks, the Rio Grande Valley is dominating Texas. If you look at the increase in hospitalizations, the Rio Grande Valley had a 91% increase from July 5th to July 8th, more than anywhere, more than Houston and Dallas. Right? Typically, the big epicenters in any state are the biggest cities because of population density. Population density is a fraction of that in Hidalgo County. Yet it's higher than anything else. Think about that. Let's go to Arizona. Yuma. There's one zip code in Yuma. I mentioned this before. It's right at the border. 85364 is the zip code. They have recorded. Listen to this. That zip code has recorded more than 3,000 COVID cases. Folks, folks, this is a single zip code in a largely rural county that's pretty small at the Arizona border in Yuma that has more COVID cases than Alaska and Vermont as a state have combined. Where do you think that's coming from? Where do you think that is coming from. I'm just telling you. We know where it's coming from. It doesn't take any, uh, it's no enigma. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but the one outstanding state that remains is Florida. You might say, well, which one is Florida? Shouldn't Florida go along with like the late surge states? So the the thing is, you're not really seeing qualitatively. If you, 
adjust for what's actually happening now, a serious surge of deaths that are occurring recently. A lot of them are backdated. What you are seeing is it certainly didn't go down and it's kind of meandered, but that's kind of part of the slow burn states. The only difference is the other slow burn states that this guy grouped very, very smartly, and it's a just amazing observation, this guy. If you look at them, they're all very small states, the slow burn states. Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, right? They're all very, you know, so it really, you know, Florida is just much bigger. So it's on a bigger level they're having that. The numbers are going to be much higher. But you don't necessarily see it. Also, there's other things at play. I don't have time to get into this now. Maybe we'll get into this later this week. But um, it turns out that the numbers are likely overstated by 30% in Florida. There's a lot of problems with the data there. Um, There's a whole problem now with all these labs that only report positive but not negative cases. So that explains this positivity rate. I mean, how do you have a fraction if you're like 100% of your reported cases are positive? And some of that's because they want to get it out quickly so the epidemiologists could track it, so the you know clinicians could treat it and deal with it. So they just say, okay, here are our positive cases, and then they kind of backfill the negatives later. But that does distort the data. There's also an article at AOL.com, Florida towns become coronavirus hotspots in the U.S., and they talk about how they're all Hispanic migrant workers. So there's a big migrant worker outbreak issue in Florida. Like I said before, Nearly 50% of all cases in Florida, known cases, so where the ethnicity of the person is known, are Hispanic. And then there's a big chunk where it's unknown. Now, I can't prove this, but I'll bet you that big chunk that's unknown, I doubt they're white. So it could very well be it's well over half the cases in Florida are Hispanic. So that's also another anomaly. That's not necessarily a border issue because they're not on the border, but that's a migrant labor issue. Okay, so that's that's a very interesting observation. Because, I mean, I, I think the problem everyone's finding is you're not finding in most other places in the world a resurgence of serious hospitalizations and deaths. Now, again, in Florida, for the most part, they're not serious, but you certainly are finding them at, in the border counties. And that's just because Mexico got hit later, and we just decided, hey, it's not enough to have our curve. We have to import Mexico's curve as well. So there's a lot of that going on. I don't have time to go through this all. But I just want to end off going back to the tyranny. That's very disturbing. There was a video out put out over the weekend on a New York subway of two white men being stabbed by this black criminal because they're white, because of their skin color. Then there's another story out. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. You could Google it if you haven't. Of this young mother of twenty, no, no older than 24 years old, stabbed to death in Indianapolis. She was walking, and someone yelled at her, Black Lives Matter, and she just said, All Lives Matter. And she was, I'm sorry, she wasn't stabbed. She was shot and killed. Then we have the story of the McCloskeys, that family in that wealthy neighborhood in St. Louis that was besieged by this mob that broke into private property, very belligerent and angry and threatening and menacing, and they came out and they pointed their guns at them to defend their home and their lives. The same St. Louis prosecutor that refused to prosecute thousands of violent rioters 
has now given a search warrant for police to take away that guy's AR-15. And they and they they face imminent threat of prosecution. Now, I know a lot of people, I see even conservatives on Twitter are telling me, well, Daniel, they're a bunch of liberals. They deserve it. Or, like, they shouldn't have swept them with their guns, meaning, like, pointed at them. They should have had it in a low-ready position. But, dude, I mean, the, 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 the right to self-defense is the right to self-defense. I mean, yeah, you know, it would be nice for them to maybe take a little self-defense course and firearms training. But, you know, they were panicked. They were very scared. It was warranted. I mean, if you have a husband and a wife faced by dozens of violent people where it's not speculative whether they're going to be violent, they broke down the gate, marched in there, very threatening. They've been beating people all over the place. Do you really think for a minute that had they not had their guns drawn, they would have left them alone? You sure don't have the responsibility to leave that to chance. And I'm just telling you, they're going to come for you. This is not about you know, some liberal family in St. Louis. This is not about the cops. This is about a reverse Jim Crow in this country. That at a time when the black youth are getting more violent than ever, and they're plaguing black neighborhoods as well as whites, rather than clamping down on crime of all types, we have both parties, including the Attorney General Barr, now saying, yes, police pick on blacks too much. And that further emboldens them, further fuels a fake outrage to justify even more violence against whites. That's going to continue. And you're not going to have a right to self-defense. They have the right to kill you. You don't have the right to defend yourself. But Attorney General Barr, under Trump, says, yeah, we need to do something about the the bias against, against blacks. What a bunch of malarkey. Obviously, you saw on Friday... Trump says to Telemundo, why is he even doing an interview with them? How he's going to do DACA on a path to citizenship. Then conservatives were outraged. The White House tried to walk it back. But those were the president's own words. I'm sick of this. If this man is going to do nothing but talk and then do nothing and then promise amnesty, step aside so we could actually nominate someone who fulfills the promises that you ran on in 2016. Lots more going on this week. Lots of information. Again, go to our articles at conservativereview.com. Tweet me at rmconservative on Twitter. Let's strategize together on our Facebook pages. Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary. Miniman Speakeasy. You can follow both of them. Until tomorrow, God bless y'all. Stay armed and stay safe. Stay safe.